I do not take lightly the privilege and responsibility of standing here at this time in the context of our worship service. And I'm grateful for the opportunity and thankful to God for that. And certainly um, thank you for this opportunity as well. With Dale being away today, we are taking a break from our study in the book of Romans and we'll instead take this opportunity to explore the theme of our verse of the year, Matthew 6.33, particularly as it pertains to the current state of affairs that we find ourselves as Christians here in America this week. Here in this portion of Matthew's account of Jesus' life on earth, we have some of Jesus' initial and perhaps most important teaching to his disciples, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And interestingly enough, a large portion, or perhaps the bulk of this teaching, is political in nature, for it concerns the kingdom of God. Kingdom is not a word we use very often anymore to refer to the people groups on the earth. We perhaps instead use words like countries or nations or political systems when we're speaking of that. And kingdom is usually reserved for the context of ancient history or perhaps even fairy tales. Of course, the danger here is that we might also be tempted when talking of God's kingdom to take it out of the practical realm of here and now and rather think of it as some ethereal, futuristic idea when Christ will come back to reign on the earth. But the kingdom of Christ is not relegated to the future. It's real today. It is both visible and invisible and contains people from every tribe, every language, every ethnicity around the globe. It is the church. Near the end of his kingdom teaching in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is in essence saying, look, if you're my disciple, then your priority is different than the worldlings around you. They are consumed with materialism. You, on the other hand, need to be consumed with my kingdom. And if your priority is right, then all this material stuff that worldlings worry about, your Father in heaven with his inexhaustible resources will provide for you. Isn't this tension really at the heart of where our society is today. Many are consumed with the politics of this worldly kingdom as it pertains to their individual and communal real and felt needs. This shouldn't surprise us as it concerns those outside the kingdom of God. All of their hopes and dreams are wrapped up in the kingdoms of this world. They don't have anywhere else to go. I'd be up in arms too if this was all I had. But it happens to believers too, doesn't it? Often when I get home in the afternoons or evenings, I find myself going to the television and going to the 24-hour news networks like a moth to the flame, only to have my blood pressure go up and frustration and anxiety set in. I look at what's going on in horror as if the unregenerate should be seeking after the kingdom of God too. What do we expect? We're pilgrims in a fallen and broken world filled with leaders who are ruling in rebellion to God. You know what? My problem 
is not really with the news anchors and the politicians. Whether I want to admit it or not, my problem in those times is that I don't believe Jesus. I think that if I can get all worked up about it, that somehow I can change it. Jesus tells me, stop worrying about all that stuff. Focus instead on my kingdom first, and I'll take care of all of that. We get so tangled up in the branches of the trees that we forget about the one who planted and maintains the forest. Our text this morning is the second psalm, and before we delve into that, I'd like us to see one way in which this psalm was very practically used by the early church to properly frame their worldview. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, in the story of Jesus and the church, the Messiah, the promised one, the King, uh, the King, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has already come to earth in human form. You might remember that at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Jews' political capital, their Washington, D.C., if you will, that on that Palm Sunday that many were ready for his inauguration as king. Finally, they would break the bondage of Rome and Israel would know the glory around the world like it had never known before. They were, in fact, a special nation, one set aside by God for the building of his kingdom on earth. Wouldn't it be natural for them to think this way? How disappointed many of them would be at the end of the week when their king was killed by the wicked pagan kingdom of this world. But we know the rest of the story. Jesus conquered death in the grave, ascended triumphantly to his throne in heaven, and sent something to his people that would empower them in a way that he could not do in his limited form. He sent his spirit to live in each one of them, which gave the disciples divine power beyond their wildest dreams. A few days after Jesus' ascension, we're told that the disciples were together and were visited by something described as a mighty rushing wind, as tongues of fire resting upon them, enabling them to speak in many languages that they had never studied, to heal people from disease and to even raise people from the dead. Peter proclaimed the word of God during the Feast of Pentecost and 3,000 were saved just like that and in turn were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Their numbers continued to grow. Every single day were added to their number. They sold their possessions, giving the proceeds to the cause. They lived together in community, thousands of them. Peter preaches again, and 5,000 more are added to the number. The religious leaders were getting nervous. They thought they had quelled this Jesus problem, but it was exploding before their eyes. It was getting out of control. They tried to control the message by arresting and threatening Peter and John, but it didn't work. The momentum was too big. It couldn't be stopped. Maybe this was the time. With this kind of momentum and spiritual power, how could they be stopped? Maybe now God was calling them to overthrow the wicked Roman political system and their religious leaders so let's see what they planned and prayed for after Peter and John were released. Was it for political power, economic growth, or religious freedom? Maybe they prayed against the wickedness of their society. Did they decide to organize for social and moral change? What were they to do, this young, growing, vibrant church with the power of God on their side? 
We read in Acts 4.23, beginning there, this account. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, here comes the requests, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When the early church was faced with political and religious opposition, opposition what did they do? They worshiped and they prayed. And in that prayer, first they acknowledged that all of their circumstances and the unthinkable acts of wicked leaders like Herod and Pilate were a direct result of the will of a sovereign God, even the crucifixion of Jesus. And then they asked not to be delivered, not to make things easier, not for a seat at the table, not to overthrow, no, they prayed that God would give them boldness to preach the gospel in the face of opposition and that his kingdom would flourish upon the earth. This alone was their priority. They knew that to frame their circumstances correctly, they must view their situation through the lens of faith and they found the words to pray in God's word. Their prayer came from Psalm 2 the text before us this morning. If you're not there already, please turn in your Bibles and let's look at God's word this morning. Psalm 2. In this psalm, the central hero and subject is the Christ of God. The kingdom of the anointed one is set in stark contrast to the kingdoms of the world. One path leads to destruction and the other to blessing. The Messiah focus of this psalm is affirmed for us many times in the New Testament. It's one of the most frequently quoted psalms. While David is its earthly author, there is no question among Bible scholars and students alike that its subject is David's greater son, the promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ. In most of your Bibles, you'll see that the, the, psalm, the poem is divided into four paragraphs or four hymn stanzas, we could say, each with a different voice. And this is the structure we will observe as well today. So follow along as I read the first stanza of this kingdom hymn in verses one through three. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the word of the Lord. Father, open our eyes this morning to see from your word what it looks like to be citizens of your kingdom. Father, speak to us through your spirit and enable us to be citizens of your kingdom that boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name, amen. So in the first stanza of our song, we have the voice of the kings of the earth in rebellion to God. Here is humanity's foundational sin of idolizing ourselves instead of worshiping God. Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden offered self-awareness and self-determination apart from the restraints of God's law. And since then until now, every man, woman, and child is set against God and his anointed one from our birth. The allure of the freedom from the tyranny of a God is a great temptation to the human heart. And this is not only true as individuals, but anytime people get together in community, the rebellion becomes corporate. Christian, the kingdoms of the earth are in opposition to the kingdom of God. If we do not understand this basic truth about humanity, then the church runs the risk of being co-opted or joining them in their cosmic rebellion to throw off the shackles of constraint. We will walk in the darkness of pragmatism instead of in the light of faith. We will make excuses for our behavior and morality in order to justify our idolatry of the kingdoms of this world. Let's continue now in the next stanza of the hymn, verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In the second stanza, we have the voice of God speaks in direct opposition to the voice of the kings of the earth. And God doesn't merely talk about doing things. He doesn't deliberate. He does. He acts by the word of his power. Men speak of what outcome they desire, what they wish to accomplish, what they hope will come to pass. But God speaks, and it is so. Universes are born. Eternal moral and physical laws are established. As humans make plans in futility, the providential eternal purposes of God unfold before our very eyes. Do you notice the contrast in the two stanzas? At the conclusion of stanza one and verse three, those who have, quote, set themselves against the Lord and his anointed take counsel with one another in rebellion and say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And in response, at the conclusion of stanza two in verse six, he who sits in the heavens says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Oh, you poor, poor, foolish men. 
attempting to throw off the shackles of truth and righteousness while plotting against the one whose will is already etched into the granite of time and space. No wonder the Lord of heaven and earth laughs and mocks their vain endeavor. God's eternal decrees are not up for debate. They aren't plan A in a game of chance. The will of the one who acts outside the boundaries of time and space is as sure as if it were completed. And it doesn't matter if we see or acknowledge the hand of God in these matters. My inability to see God at work doesn't change his course of action. When you go to bed Tuesday night or wake up Wednesday morning, regardless of who the next president of the United States is, worship God for his good and gracious providence in the affairs of men and marvel at how he will build his kingdom in and through the rebellious kingdoms of this world. How utterly horrible to then read next, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. For whatever follows that, it says, is terrifying. And not only is it a threat, but it's the sure word of the Lord and, and is being enacted by the word of his power. So what's so terrifying about the next phrase? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, in chapter 11 of John's Revelation, we have a glimpse of how this statement is fulfilled. Hear these words. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The terrifying reality for the rebellious kings of the earth who set themselves up against the Lord is the judgment day is coming. Their empires will crumble before the one true kingdom of God, and they will stand before the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, under his judgment and wrath. There's nothing more terrifying than that reality. God's kingdom is sure. It will prevail over and above all other kingdoms. In his commentary on Psalm 72, another messianic kingship psalm, Charles Spurgeon says this of Christ's reign. We see on the shore of time the wrecks of the Caesars, the relics of the Mughals, and the last remnants of the Ottomans. Charlemagne, Maximilian, Napoleon, how they flit like shadows before us. They were and are not, but Jesus forever is. Spurgeon recognized that the kingdoms of this world come and go with time, but Jesus' kingdom is forever. Let's take a look at the next stanza in verses seven through nine. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In the third stanza, we hear the voice of God's anointed one, 
the Messiah, recounting the Father's words to him. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This phrase foreshadows the Father's statement of Jesus' baptism when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, indicating Jesus' fulfillment of his role in coming to earth as a man. How cunning for Satan to take the very next statement, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, and twist it into what may have been the most tempting of Jesus' trials in the wilderness, right after his baptism. Taking Jesus to a high place and showing him the kingdoms of the world, Satan said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Well, certainly Jesus knew this psalm by heart. He knew of the promise that his father had made to him here in this hymn of his faith. But what if there were another way? What if Satan released his grip over the hearts of humanity and gave Jesus what he came for? What if suffering the hell of the wrath of God could be bypassed? But Jesus rebuked Satan with the word of his father. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He knew that his kingdom could only be built according to the will of his father. Part of God's promise to his son to build his kingdom was fulfilled in the son taking upon himself God's wrath for his people on the cross. Jesus was the vessel that was smitten of God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that we might have peace with God and be healed. The final part of the promise will be fulfilled in Jesus subduing to himself the nations of the world when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Judgment will be poured out upon those who refuse to submit like a rod of iron smashes a clay vessel into smithereens. God is building and will continue to build his kingdom but not through the political systems of this world. God will build his son's kingdom as the church boldly proclaims the gospel in love to a dying world. In our final stanza, let's take a look in verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In the final stanza, we hear the voice of the psalmist David giving fair warning to the kings and rulers of the earth. Submission to the Lord's anointed one isn't a matter of choice, it's a matter of timing. It is either in willful humility, out of reverence and awe, or forced subjugation, accompanied by anger and wrath. There are but two paths for humanity. The kingdom of man, which sets itself in opposition to the Son, and the kingdom of God, which has been redeemed by and for the Son. To humbly bow and kiss the Son is to serve the Lord in awe, as we consider the cost of our redemption, to rejoice in reverence out of our position in Christ and to find ourselves within this blessed state of eternity and refuge. 
But to turn away in rejection of his authority and righteousness is to utterly perish in the way by bringing down his swift anger and wrath upon us. This is the gospel. In Mark's account, Jesus' first public statement concerned his kingdom. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The message is the same today for the rebellious heart who is defiant towards the Son. Today is the day of salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you find yourself outside of the grace and mercy of God, outside of this kingdom of his, the call to repent and to believe has gone out to you. Kiss the Son today. Christian, and believe me, I've been living with this all week. Let's ask ourselves some diagnostic questions to evaluate where our thinking is as it concerns God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. Do you believe that the world will come to an end if the right people are not governing the kingdoms of the earth? How does that belief mesh with God sovereignly establishing his son's reign in his perfect timing and in and through who he puts on the thrones of the kingdoms of the earth? Do you believe that God is sovereign over all? If so, then why do some speak and act as though Satan and the kings of the earth might actually win in their rebellion against the kingdom of God? Why do we wring our hands and run around like chicken little crying out that the sky is falling at the slightest bump on our heads from the proverbial acorns of life? We prayed moments ago, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if the answer to that prayer meant that your candidate needs to lose this election? Can you peacefully submit to the sovereign will of your heavenly Father? Shouldn't we be able to pray this prayer on Wednesday with as much confidence as we prayed it today, no matter the outcome? Is your hope for the world in the good news of Jesus Christ alone, or are you trusting in a candidate part of your platform, i.e. kingdom of the world, for the salvation of the world? Have we lost our confidence in the success of the gospel? We're in the middle of a weekend of prayer here for our country. Starting on Friday, you were encouraged to begin praying, and we hope it'll continue through tonight, in community groups and at homes, and through the week. Prayer guides were prepared for us with this uh, emphasis. Be sure you have one of these before you leave today. You'll find them around the campus. It'll aid us in framing our minds according to God's word and his kingdom over the next few days. Typically, when we do pray about politics, elections, or the moral collapse of our country, do we focus on praying for the success of the kingdom of God or do we ask God to bless the kingdom of man? Here's a good diagnostic or way to tell, I think. When we pray for our partners in the gospel around the world, Taiwan, Haiti, Bulgaria, England, Germany, or Ukraine, how do we pray? 
What kinds of things are we passionate about for these other places around the globe? Generally, it's something along the lines of praying for the protection of our brothers and sisters in Christ from the evil one. Or we pray that God would use the local church in those countries to proclaim the gospel and reap a harvest of souls. We might pray for the success of the church's mercy ministries within their communities. We might pray for the unity of the brothers and sisters in the church in those places, or that God would tear down obstacles to the further expansion of his kingdom. But now when we think about what's important and how to pray in our own backyard, does it look any different than that? Which kingdom do our passions and our prayers reflect? I can't help but wonder that if instead of being consumed with political activism, if the American church, like the early church, were focused on asking God for boldness to proclaim the gospel and for the flourishing of his kingdom on earth, if the Lord might actually answer that prayer and send revival to us. So what happened to the church in Acts as a result of their prayer? You know the story. God answered it. The church exploded all through the known world. But what about their immediate political environment? While God's kingdom flourished all around them, the circumstances in their earthly kingdom where they lived didn't get any better. In fact, they hadn't seen anything yet. Just wait until Nero comes on the scene. Peter and Paul would be executed. The church would be blamed for the burning of Rome, followed by intense persecution, ultimately being thrown into the Colosseum with gladiators and wild animals. And yes, even as God was sovereign over Pilate and Herod, who crucified Christ, so has he been sovereign over all the rulers of all nations for all time. God already knows the election results. Newsflash. In fact, he is right in the middle of it. We can have complete confidence that our sovereign father is in control and we can lean upon Jesus in calm, quiet repose. Perhaps there has never been a better opportunity for the church to show the world where our one true hope lies. Not our future hope, our present hope. Our friends, neighbors, and families need to be pointed to something other than one of the political parties. They need us to tell them that our allegiance is to the only one who can actually save us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is the only just and righteous ruler in the universe. The last sweet line of our psalm today reads, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We could say happy or content or satisfied are all who take refuge in him. Frankly, I'm not seeing a lot of happiness and contentedness among God's people right now. Rather, I see folks that are restless, agitated, and afraid. I believe this says more about which kingdom we're focused on than it does about our circumstances. Let us focus our eyes upon his universal, eternal, victorious kingdom, the church. Folks, we win. 
May we use this time of unrest in our world to test our affections and tell others of the one king who will actually satisfy their every desire. And let us commit to praying for the kings and rulers that God will set in place over us. Let us pray that they would kiss the son for the sake of their own souls and for the soul of the nation. Let us pray that our leaders would rule in the fear of the Lord and not conspire with other nations against the Lord Jesus, the anointed one. Let us pray for the success of Christ's kingdom through the proclamation of his gospel here and around the world. May his kingdom continue to flourish and grow, and may we see that progress, not just here, but around the world, and be encouraged in our faith. And may we give thanks and worship the Christ who suffered the wrath of God that we might be his subjects confident in his ultimate victory of the forces of evil in the world and renewed in our commitment to proclaim his kingdom until he comes to judge and reign the nations. Amen?